Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 145 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Here in the UK, the government has approved emergency use of neonicotinoids, sending alarm bells ringing among some beekeeping and conservation groups. It's time to open that large can of worms. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. It's a frosty winter's morning here, and time to sit back with a hot coffee or tea, if that's your weapon of choice, and ponder a rather complex topic. That being the use of the agrochemical group of neonicotinoids here in the UK, or specifically, the recent approval for use after its ban a few years ago. I have to say, I've only got 15 minutes here, so this isn't going to be a wide-ranging discussion, rather a look at uh, perhaps where we're currently at, combined with a personal view on how my beekeeping has been impacted or otherwise by the use of these chemicals, particularly the neonicotinoids. Be warned, though, I'm really only scratching a very small part of this discussion Perhaps we'll come back to it another time when I've had a chance to review more information. But anyway, before we begin, I hope you're all safe and well. It looks like we're in for an extended period of reluctant lockdown as we continue to get to grips with this COVID pandemic. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you and your loved ones are all coping and able to support each other. So agrochemicals, particularly neonicotinoids. This topic, more than a lot of beekeeping topics, seem to polarise many people into one of two camps, really. That of a total ban or complete indifference to their use, bordering on allowing the free use of chemicals generally. There are also those, uh, myself included, who are somewhat confused by the flood of information that seems to occasionally hit us. In order to try to start to unpick this, I'm going to sit firmly on the fence for now and try to give some balance which can seem lacking from the general day-to-day discussions that take place. People seem to get very heated about this topic, and I can understand why. It is a really concerning topic for everybody, really. But the day-to-day discussions that take place, particularly in the media and all over the social media platforms, are filled with what seems to be so much debris. It's like trying to find your way out of a maze of fake news. The reason for discussing this now is that at our local association AGM last week, the topic of the recent approval of use of neonicotinoids was raised. And although we didn't really have time to discuss it fully, the subject was obviously very important to several members. I chipped in with my thoughts, as I do, but then got to thinking maybe I need to look more closely at this before forcing my views and opinions on other people, and that's not something that I really want to do. It's a bit like saying top bar hives are rubbish when you've never used them. So where can you start to get information? Well, I would suggest social media. It's mostly information from people looking to do as I did at the AGM and talk of opinions without a great deal of research. 
a belief that a snippet of information that they heard or saw shared thousands of times must be true. So they in turn share it and eventually it becomes a fact in their mind. I have to say that's not what I generally tend to do. How about newspapers though or TV channels? Well, if you look a little closer again, you find the research can be a little weak. If you search Google, you can find a mountain of blogs proclaiming how devastating neonicotinoids are to the environment, alongside blogs also proclaiming that without them, our agricultural base worldwide will crumble and fall apart. Here I should say I will put links to all of the articles, websites, blogs and research that I found in my very brief foray into this subject into the podcast notes. There honestly isn't enough time in the day to go through all of the information that's out there. And I think therein lies the problem. We're all busy and I suspect depending on your personal views and the amount of time that you've got, it's likely that we all search for information to reinforce our own point of view, thus proving ourselves right at the expense of searching out the truth in case perhaps it makes us look a little bit foolish. I know I do get things wrong on occasion, and I'm perfectly happy to hold my hand up and admit it, and that's why I'm trying to sit on the fence here and look at both sides of the story, admittedly in a very narrow time frame. So what are neonicotinoids, particularly with respect to our honeybees? Well, here again, depending on where and what you read, they're either neurotoxic insecticides that kill all insects, or they are an excellent alternative to organophosphate and pyrethroid pesticides because of their success in pest control. You could spend a lot of time just trying to establish what they are and how they work. Suffice to say, they act on the nerve cells of the target pest, causing a range of symptoms but eventually killing them. The concern, of course, is that they also work in exactly the same way on non-targeted insects, including our honeybees, but to a greater or lesser degree, again, depending on the viewpoint you start with. In terms of use, worldwide, the family of neonicotinoid treatments is widespread. On the face of it, the USA is currently one of the biggest users, and I suspect that pre-ban, Europe and the UK were also high up on the list, along with any country that has intensive farming programmes where the neonicotinoid family of treatments kill off the pests associated with a wide range of crops. And that range of crops these chemicals are used on is enormous. Of particular interest to us beekeepers is, of course, oilseed rape or canola, depending on where you're from. Seeds are coated with the insecticide, which is then taken into the plant and is found in pretty much every part of the plant, including roots, stem, flowers, pollen and nectar. This then again is a particular concern for us. Part of the issue for us beekeepers trying to make an informed decision on what view to take is there is so much white noise to work through and you really need to make this a full-time job to pick out the detail, especially when reading through article upon article in an attempt to improve your knowledge. Honestly, I just don't have the time. Here's an example of what I mean. You would think a scientific research paper, peer-reviewed and published, would be a fairly safe place to start. But let's check out what one has to say. And please believe me when I say there are hundreds out there to read. 
Here's what a paper published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry has to say, and I quote from the paper's abstract. Because of the relatively low risk for non-target organisms and the environment, the high target specificity of neonicotinoid insecticides and their versatility in application methods, this important class has to be maintained globally for integrated pest management strategies and insect resistant management programs. It sounds like neonicotinoids are just what we need. Until that is, you read that, and again, I quote the paper here, the material covered by this paper is based on inventions and scientific support of Bayer Crop Science, who produce neonicotinoid chemicals. It just seems that wherever you look, someone seems to have a stake in the outcome of the research. I read another paper which on the face of it seems to confirm the negative effects of neonics. This paper, however, focused on the effects on honeybees that were close to fields of corn that had been treated with neonics, and the author's proof of ill effects was determined not by field studies, but by lab experiments on the honeybees, and not real-world observations. One point in particular that made me question what I was reading was a statement that the bees exposed to neonics had a 23% reduced life expectancy. Proved by sticking a radio tag on the back of the bee and counting the number of flights taken, I'm not sure I would work as effectively as someone else if I had to lug a radio tag around with me on my back for all time. The more I read, the more I find questions to the methods and data. And again, I have to come back to the point that unless someone out there wants to pay me a salary and let me spend a few years reviewing the published data, I really don't think I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Back to Google, and my searching throws up multiple news media headlines, such as UK allows emergency use of bee-harming pesticide, and loophole keeps bee-killing pesticides in widespread use, or another government breaks promise to maintain ban on bee-harming pesticide. The latest headlines refer to the use of neonics on sugar beet, a crop that honeybees are unlikely to go near, but there are other implications for the wider environment, and I do acknowledge these. Potential accumulation of chemicals in soils, runoff into watercourses, again potential for build-up of chemicals in perennial plants, just to name a few of the issues. As I said earlier, I could research this topic for years and still be no nearer the accurate real-world facts. I have no doubt the facts presented in all the papers that I've had sight of show what the authors to believe to be true and accurate accounts of their findings. But what about the research that doesn't get published? Because maybe it doesn't show what the funding body wants it to show. Or am I being a little bit too sceptical here? What is interesting is how governments decide they're going to regulate or not, as the case may be. And I found an interesting paper that talks about the precautionary principle in relation to neonics and bee health. In the article, which is from 2018, it comments that even in recent times, up to publication of that article, the scientific evidence of the impact of neonicotinoids on bee health remains debated. Our government here in the UK, regardless of political persuasion, will, it appears, take on a science-based approach. 
but have also been seen to opt for the precautionary principle in some instances, and I think that's been the case with neonicotinoids. The precautionary principle being, from what I can understand of it, and I'm putting this into words that seem to make sense to me, don't do something or use something that has a chance of negatively impacting on, in the case of neonicotinoids, the wider environment and all living things within it. But again, it's further complicated by debate on exactly what precautionary principle actually means. In its strongest form, it's suggested that there must be absolute proof of safety before allowing something to be used or adopted. And it will come as no surprise that this is the stance that many environmentalist groups and NGOs around the world take. And please believe me when I say I'm not totally opposed to this approach. Compare that approach to the version agreed at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, and I quote, where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage, lack of scientific certainty shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation. So that seems like a bit of a softer stance. So how on earth do we as lay people have a hope of understanding what is in the minds of the people who are going to make the decisions? If this is a particular topic of interest for you personally, then I'm sure you understand it far better than I. But the fact remains that many beekeepers just don't have the time or inclination to root around the internet trying to uncover sufficient evidence to make an informed decision. This is unless you have a particular view, of course. As I've said, I can make a case for a total ban because of environmental damage using scientific data, but I can also make a case for continued use in the same way, supporting food production, for instance. The biggest issue we have is these chemicals, the pesticides, are designed to be toxic to insects. It's what they're used for. The challenge we face is, and I would say this is where most issues end up, we need to find a compromise that works for all parties, and that has to be the trickiest task of all. Specifically regarding neonics, there's plenty of evidence out there to support a ban, but also as much evidence to support the agrochemical and farming industries. And it leads on to another issue. Without worldwide agreement on these chemicals, we find the playing field gets shifted in favour of crop production in some countries where neonics are still allowed to be used. And even closer to home, the EU ban has already seen multiple emergency use treatments being authorised, meaning actually a ban is not being strictly enforced, and rules are flexible depending on which country you specifically look at. Here in the UK, the emergency use application for sugar beet is, I think, the first application to be approved, but could be a slippery slope and set a precedent for future applications. However, without some form of pest control, our farming industry will struggle to remain competitive in a very competitive global economy and market. Meanwhile, back to the article that kicked this all off for me, late last night I had a message from my brother highlighting another twist in the discussion. It appears the organisation that represents wildlife trusts here in the UK, called, unsurprisingly, the Wildlife Trusts, are going to mount a legal challenge against the UK government to prevent the authorisation going ahead. What I find most interesting is that the article 
has a particular approach and in one part states, and I quote, multiple studies, including large-scale field trials, have found that neonicotinoids harm pollinators. I just had to look for the research. So I searched out the research paper that was linked to this statement and found that yes, indeed, there was some evidence that some harm was caused. But the research paper also says, and I quote, overall neonicotinoid residues were detected infrequently. As such, direct mortality effects caused by exposure to neonicotinoids are likely to be rare. Now, I'm not quoting this to defend the use of neonicotinoids. I just wanted to point out that if you look closely enough in the research papers, you can find evidence to support a particular view. For my part, I feel I need to look more closely at the data to try to find a point of view to fly my flag from. But on the evidence so far, I feel, well, as confused as ever. Anecdotally, I've placed my beehives on the edge of fields of oilseed rape for quite a number of years and have never lost a colony to what appears to be chemical poisoning. I have, however, lost many colonies to varroa, starvation and, probably, beekeeper incompetence. That said, I do worry about our countryside and the wildlife within it and wouldn't want the general prophylactic use of chemicals to become widespread. And so here you find me sitting firmly on the fence once more. I'm sure this is a topic we'll have to revisit again and again as more data becomes available. And I'm sure lots of you have got views either for or against the ban, and I'm sure you'll let me know. Finally, if you're looking for bee feed for your colonies, remember to check out my website for the full range of syrups, fondants and pollen substitutes available for delivery or collection. Well, that's it for this week. Do check out the links and references in the podcast notes for more information about today's topic. But until next time, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet.